Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello guys, this is episode 36 of the Market Pulse podcast, the I1 by a lot edition. My name is Dion Gruben. Thank you very much again for tuning in to our weekly podcast here. So a fair bit to talk about this week and I'm not going to really waste any more time. It was a big week, uh, one that won't, one that certainly won't easily be forgotten. Um, but we had some really big results across the market. So I'm going to dive into that one straight away. So the ASX 200 was actually up 4.4%. The S&P 500 in the US, so the top 500 stocks, there, that index was up 7.3%. The NASDAQ app a whopping 9%. Those US indices, so both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ actually posted their best weekly numbers since April 9th. So a huge week on the market. And like I said, not done, not one that will be easily forgotten and probably worth mentioning that it's kind of come off somewhat of a low base. Remember last week was a bit of a shocker in terms of performance overall. Again, we, we spoke about the idea of when you have these lead-ups, financial markets in a, in a lead-up to like a big global event or something notable like, say, the US election, you'll often see these market jitters before it eventually sort of settles down. That sort of happened when Trump was elected in the first place. Uh, it was It was sort of trending downwards or not having a great time and then and then when it was announced it the futures actually dived a little bit more but eventually just it just kept climbing after that but as of Sunday the 8th of November I'm recording this in the afternoon around four o'clock the Associated Press as well as pretty much the entire media apparatus have called the race for Joe Biden now and he is heading for the White House in the new year president-elect Scranton Joe, although important to note that there are still two states yet to be officially called, but it appears at this stage that Joe Biden will win the election with about 306 electoral votes, clearing the 270, which is needed to win after a few of those swing states. Uh, Basically, a few of those swing states kind of started to swing towards him once they started counting, counting the postal votes, which we talked about here on the podcast those specific states that don't count their postal ballots until voting finishes on election day and then the rest of the world sits around for the next several days running why the hell hasn't Pennsylvania finished their counting yet well that was the law that was the rule there in that state so and you guys listening to the podcast would have known that but the market and financial markets globally speaking have more or less been operating on the idea that Biden will be the president-elect and that is And also, I guess that it's unlikely the Democratic Party will control both the House and the Senate. They already controlled the House going into this election. They were kind of hopeful that they'd just retain that level that they control in the House, but also take the Senate. That appears unlikely now. However, to get technical, it's possible that the Democratic Party can get 50 Senate seats as there are some runoff races. An example of that is Georgia. So if you're running for the Senate spot, uh, you need to get the majority of votes in the Senate race in Georgia, so more, so 50% or more. Otherwise, it goes to runoff races between the top two candidates. So 
and that will happen in the new year. So there are still, I think, two seats up for grabs. So there's technically the ability there for the Democratic Party to get, say, 50 Senate seats, but that's a maybe at the moment. But next week, Monday, we'll see how the market reacts to the, I guess, the the confirmation that he is Biden is president-elect. My gut says it will be a positive reaction considering the market's already basically been operating under the assumption that it's a Biden win for the last couple of days there of the week just ended. But we will see. What does it mean for markets? Uh, or maybe for the US market more so, but globally. But a lot of this is speculation. We don't uh, we don't know how the Senate lands just yet, but it, it does, like I said, it doesn't look great for the Democratic Party who had hoped for a majority. I mean, they really, really thought they had like a, a good shot at at the Senate, and, and but some of the some of the prospect seats that they had sort of counted on in that thinking didn't pan out at all. So one of them was the seat uh, South Carolina, which is a long term Republican senator Lindsey Graham, who'd been the senator there, had held it for like seventeen, eighteen years or so. And we could talk about how bad some of the polling was in selection because there was some bad polling at both state and national level but anyway but he but Lindsey Graham was polling extremely bad against the democratic opponent uh, Jamie Harrison and Jamie Harrison's race had spent like 100 million dollars just to just to get a senate seat in the state of South Carolina not so not even for president 100 million dollars just for the senate race and he didn't even win and he didn't even win it's not like he came so super close to winning either. So he, he lost at like the same margin that the previous person running um, four years ago had at that time. But so a fair bit of money spent, but, but back on track, not looking good for, for Democrats in terms of, I guess, having the Senate. It, it's likely that you, you we're entering a situation where you have President Joe Biden with a Democratic-controlled House but a Republican-controlled Senate who might do a, a fair chunk of, you know, legislation blocking or, a, or at least, in a way, force Biden to change some of the things he's thinking about or make cuts or implement ideas that they are chasing in order to get stuff through. Some of the big ones at the financial markets I guess analysts have been focused on is relates both to taxes from corporate and personal level. So a couple, sort of a couple of key things to note here when you when you hear the talk about changes to corporate and personal tax in the U.S. So Biden has proposed raising the tax rate of people earning over 400k annually to 39.6%. Is currently at 37%. So 2.6% increase, and that would raise it back to what the tax rate was during the Obama era. The other thing is corporate tax rates. This is probably one of the biggest things Trump did during his tenure in the White House. Certainly received extremely well by the financial markets because it helped the corporates, corporates who we're, you know, we're investing in. So it helps the Apples and the Amazons of the world who don't pay a lot of tax anyway. But, um, but Trump cut the uh, corporate tax rate down to 21% during his tenure. Biden wants to push it to 28%. Again, for a bit of, say, Obama-era context, it was 35% during Obama's reign. So even what Biden wants to push it to is, is not anywhere near what it was during then. So, but, but still higher, a lot higher than what Trump has cut it down to. 
There are other changes in the firing line that Biden talks about, uh, Affordable Care Act expansion, some student loan forgiveness, potentially affordable housing plans, but probably the other big thing that's on the, on the market's mind, which we keep banging on about, is a stimulus bill to support those affected by COVID-19 because I guess amongst all this change that the news is talking about and there's, there's a lot of excitement, I guess, in terms of the change as well, America is still getting smashed with COVID case numbers and the two-day and seven-day moving average on their daily deaths are starting to head in the wrong direction or the wrong way back to sort of what it was back in August. So not a lot of good news in that regard. Economically, still millions struggling to meet bills, millions out of a job. There are deadlines like the the rent eviction moratorium, so where for renters, I guess you're not going to get kicked out by your landlord. Um, Donald Trump extended that to the end of 2020, but those things are all still coming up still and need to be addressed. So I think I'm optimistic that something gets passed. I'm not, I mean, I'm not certain this is before Biden takes office though, and that's not going to be to the new year. So, but news of news of some kind of stimulus at this stage would be more than welcomed by the market. That's that's one thing I would be sure of. Let's bring it back home to Australia, where the sort of I guess the big macro news of the week centered around the Reserve Bank of Australia, and we touched on just that sort of overwhelming likelihood that the RBA would cut rates on Melbourne Cup Day this week, which they did to nobody's surprise, and interest rates were brought down to another historic low, this time to 0.10%. The other big thing worth touching on, which you may have heard about in the media or just your reading during the week, was the foray of that the RBA is taking into quantitative easing or QE, in terms of specifics, I've taken this next part from the, there was a statement released during the week by Philip Lowe, who's the governor of our Reserve Bank in Australia, quote, the purchase of $100 billion of government bonds of maturities of around five to 10 years over the next six months. Under the program to purchase longer dated bonds, the bank, as in the Reserve Bank, will buy bonds issued by the Australian government and by the states and territories with an expected 80-20 split. So just quickly on that one, so as in 80% will be Australian government treasury bonds and then 20% will be state and territory bonds that they're looking at. They go further. These bonds will be bought in the secondary market through regular auctions with the first auction to be held this Thursday for Australian government securities. Now, QE is something or quantitative easing is something you might be familiar with because central banks have done this before. Most notably, our central bank has... I guess tried to sort of steer clear of doing this kind of stuff or at least hold out and doing stuff like this but you've seen it happen in Europe you've seen it happen in the US most notably after the global financial crisis this is something that the US Fed undertook to a huge measure but it's important I think first to define what it is so you guys have an understanding when you hear that word when you hear QE in the news moving forward it, you'll hear people call it money printing I guess it's more money creation, which probably sounds like the same thing, but, <laughs> but it's a, the, the effort is to stimulate the economy and keep interest rates low as well. So, we'll, And I'll just quickly touch on interest rates for one second. So the RBA has cut them to a historic low, more or less, and it's more or less guaranteed that that's a wrap for several years to come, as in they're not moving those rates for several years. Now, 
governor, reserve bank governors or the heads of reserve banks, are, they never quite definitively say anything, but that's more or less what they're signaling at the moment. And now interest rates are a, a tool that, so it's become, it falls under what's called monetary policy. So if you hear the word monetary policy, think central banks like the Reserve Bank of Australia or the Fed in the US. If you hear fiscal policy, think the government so actions undertaken at a government policy. So maybe like when I was talking about that stimulus package that the market's waiting on in the US or a further stimulus package, maybe that's maybe think about that more as like a fiscal policy, right? That's where the, the government can do something. Now let's just say purely hypothetically that right before COVID, interest rates in Australia were say at 5%, right? Which they weren't. And we all know that because we get nothing in our bank accounts. But if they were, the RBA would have a fair bit of room to move with in terms of lowering them, right? So the RBA would look to lower rates to help incentivize borrowing from businesses. It could, say, look to lessen the burden of mortgage repayments, which may be important during an economic downturn, for example. So the RBA could pull rates down heavily, which in turn the, the banks, like the retail banks, will cut home loan interest rates, which in turn gives you guys say a bit more breathing room on your home loan. So that's all an example of what the RBA might use interest rates for. This is all purely hypothetical because the reality is the RBA did not have that much breathing room going into this crisis. Rates are now, rates were already very low, already at record lows to, <laughs> and then now they're at more record lows. So they've increased that record. So they're basically at rock bottom, even though they're not at zero, they're, at, they're at basically effectively at zero though. But the announcement of quantitative easing or QE was probably the most important thing out of what the RBA talked about this week because it has been, like I said, it's been cautious to go down this path. But as we just heard, it's committed to buying $100 billion in government bonds. So let's talk about how it works exactly. I guess the best way to start this is talking about what the bond is first. So an Australian, a government bond, generally speaking, is consider one of the safest investments you can ever invest in, right? Because it's like, it's basically like you're loaning some money to the government effectively. So that you might buy, I don't know, I'm just going to use silly figures here, but let's say you put $1,000 into an Australian government bond and it's a 10-year bond, right? Effectively, it's an IOU from the government. So they're saying, look, IOU, this $1,000 in 10 years because it's a 10-year bond and over the next 10 years, I'm going to pay you interest for that. So in the same way that when we go out and get loans, we have to pay interest, the, the Australian government's going to pay you an interest for holding that bond. And at the end of the 10 years, it will credit you back the principal. So that $1,000. Now, what we're talking about, what the <laughs> RBA and what big banks, commercial banks, super funds, uh, pension funds, all that stuff are much bigger than, they're, they're dealing with figures much bigger than $1,000, but you get the, the gist. And the reason it's considered safe is it just seems so unlikely the idea of the Australian government defaulting on their debt. Like you can imagine your neighbour defaulting on their home loan, but the idea that ScoMo doesn't pay the bills <laughs> is just silly. Like the idea that the Australian government doesn't pay their bills. It just won't happen, right? So that's why they're considered one of the safest investments. Now, these are usually bought at a very high level when they're issued by the Treasury Department or the Australian Treasury Department, that is. So there's debt, there's these, these government bonds are issued by them, generally snapped up at a very high institutional level by 
you know, large banks, could be domestic, could be foreign. But if you're a bank now and say if you're holding, let's say you're holding $100 million in an Australian government bond that's a 10-year bond, well, you've got basically this buyer that's a very keen guaranteed buyer in the RBA ready to snap up those bonds off your books. So if you've got like $100 million in an Australian government 10-year bond, suddenly the RBA is very keen to just take that off your hands and credit you with $100 million in actual cash. So that's kind of where the idea of this, the whole, when people say it's cash printing because it's the creation of that that money because the RBA is, is taking on these government bonds. Now, you, you might then, the, the obvious next question is why why does it want to do it? Why does it want to go into this quantitative easing? What's the point of it in terms of the economy or the market? So one thing is to shore up demand for the bonds, right? Because if if it can be if it can create this this high demand for bonds through its bond buying, the RBA that is, it keeps rates low. The reason it wants to keep rates low during a time like this is it wants to incentivize businesses banks, whatever, to lend. It wants to encourage us, I guess, even at the individual level, because if we see rates are low, to also borrow, right, to stimulate the economy. So maybe get a loan to buy that car, get a loan to buy that house, whatever it is, right? So that's one of the ideas behind why it wants to keep rates low. Another reason is it has, I guess, somewhat of an indirect impact on our the Australian dollar. So it helps to put it helps put some downward pressure on the Australian dollar. The idea again behind that is that is good for our domestic businesses that are exporting overseas. So a lower Australian dollar is better for our exporters. Obviously, it's not that good for us if we're trying to buy something from the American, I don't know, some American website where we've got to pay it in US dollars and pay for the shipping is tough, right? But they don't care about that. So they're trying to put some downward pressure on the Australian dollar to help our exporters because that's hopefully going to help our home businesses here in Australia. So hopefully that makes sense. You can find a million videos and articles online on what exactly QE is. I recommend having a, having a look at that because that is what the RBA is starting to do. It's somewhat of a, oh, I, don't, I hate to say, I wouldn't say controversial, I guess it's debated on how effective it is, I think. Not people aren't saying that it's in, completely ineffective for the outcomes it's trying to achieve, but there is debate on whether it's worth it in terms of the results. I guess it achieves, but that was probably the biggest. Those are the most important thing that came from the RBA this week. The rate cut, uh, you know, whatever. Like it's not. I don't see what it's going to do, but that the QE is probably the important one to watch there, and it kind of segues into. Nicely into we're going to talk about some of the banks this week, and I guess in terms of that rate cut that we saw the RBA do while we were discussing that, we we saw banks actually come to the table with new fixed rate loan offers, starting with the number one. So I think Combank and Westpac moved the quickest. They both have a one point nine nine percent fixed rate home loan now because of this decision by the Reserve to cut rates. NAB did a smidge better with a fixed rate of 1.98%. But it wasn't, that's not really why I'm talking. I'm not here to talk about the rates that they're offering in the home loans, but the banks were all in the news this week because 
they were not not all of them, but they were reporting their results. So the likes of NAB, Westpac, Macquarie Group worth updating on as well, although it's very different to those other two. But let's start with NAB. Not a fantastic time to be in the business of banking, but NAB came to the market reporting that, I guess, the second half earnings were impacted pretty heavily, obviously just during to some, I guess, business-related stuff, but also COVID-related stuff because there's still some impact from the Royal Commission, which finished up. NAB reported that cash earnings were actually down 36.6%. If you take out, I guess, some of the one-off things, they it was down 25.9% to $4.73 billion. Now, one of the things that you look at if you are an investor in banks is the NIM or the net interest margin. So this is something that has been getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed in uh, in, the, in the latest years. But it's a, it's a measure which I guess investors who you know, look at banks to invest in, they they look at this, what's called the net interest margin as a bit of an indicator specific to banks. Now, I thought it might be best to explain what that is. So net interest margin or NIM, N-I-M, it's a bit of an indicator that people watch because it looks at, so in terms of a bank, right? So it's looking at how much it earns from things like credit products, right? So it could be a personal loan for your car. It could be a home loan because you've just bought a new house. So what it's earning from that, it's offsetting the outgoing interest it pays to say savings account holders or term deposit holders, right? So it's the difference there that they're making. It's an important indicator because it's it's one of, I guess, one of a bank's profitability indicators because that's traditionally in some ways how the, how the bank actually makes money. In terms of NAB's report here, NAB came in, well, with their NIM that they released to the market, it declined 0.01%. It is at 1.77%. Because on one hand, like, I mean, the banks are not really paying much of a, much of a, a yield to people putting money in a, in an at call savings account, right? So if you've got a saver with the banks, which you probably all do, you've noticed that that's just been getting slashed and slashed and slashed and it might even be at zero right now or at least next to zero. But on the other hand, for banks, where they're getting squeezed too is is with rates going down, you know, the home loans, like I just mentioned, like fixed rates or whether it's variable rates, fixed rates, they have been going down over the years too. Now, I guess the other thing that you're looking at when it comes to banks at the moment is how their or how healthy their book is. There wasn't some great indicators here for NAB. So you've seen that out of the percentage of their total loans, the the number of ones that are sort of credit impairment ones, so the bad ones, that actually rose slightly. So that's not a good uh, yeah, not a good indicator there for NAB. The silver lining, they did announce a final dividend, 30 cents per share. So a bit of a yield there for customers who are chasing that. Remember how we talked about the fact that APRA have been putting the stamp down on bank dividends. So that actual dividend that they announced came in at 49.8% of their statutory earnings, which again is just, just, just under the APRA limit of around 50% at the moment, which pretty much all the banks have been doing. Look, honestly, there's not too much to get into on Westpac. There's almost like a bit of a similar tune, but there are a couple of differences, I suppose. Their cash earnings down 62% to $2.61 billion. They, again, they talk about these sort of one-off things. So Westpac, again, 
had had to put money aside for they've had to pay fines regarding to the Royal Commission, the Austrac proceedings against Westpac, which you might have noticed in the news. When you look at their NIM, so their net interest margin, that also declined by 0.04% to 2.08%. So they're actually sitting better in that regard. Even though it did come down a little bit, they're sitting in better in that regard than NAB. They also declared a, a, a dividend, 30, 31 cents per share. For them, this came in at about 49% of those full-year statutory earnings results. So again, you're basically hitting the, the maximum that APRA is going to be allowing at this stage for bank dividends. Now, I guess I, I talked to some silver linings. So I did note in an article this week, from Rask Media, so that more than more than two, and this came out from Westpac specifically, but more than two thirds of Westpac home loan customers who were on deferral packages have started making repayments again as of 28th of October. So that, that I guess some positive signs there. But again, I don't. I guess this is all just general advice, but I'm not sure if I'm too keen on the idea of putting money into some of these retail banks at the moment, because if you're chasing a yield, there's not much of it right now in terms of dividends. If you're chasing capital growth, yeah, I mean, really, you're going to get it in these ones because it's not exactly, again, the best of times for the banks. Probably one thing that I'll talk about is Macquarie. So it was also in the news. If you had to, if you, you know, Macquarie isn't the same basket as the big four retail banks, which is fine because it's more of an it's it's more of an investment bank. And so I guess if you were putting a gun to my head and said you got to put you got to put some money into either one of the big four retail banks or Macquarie Bank as a long term investment, and I emphasise long term because no one knows. Well, I don't know what the short term holds, but I probably wouldn't be that stressed picking Macquarie Group in that in that stage. And I and I say that as general advice and as someone who doesn't actually own shares in Macquarie, but I don't I don't mind the idea for a long term investor. They had a good Friday. Their shares were up 2.26% after releasing some earnings to the market. Not that it painted the prettiest of pictures, but markets are always about anticipation and what they expect. Their net profit after tax down 32% for the first half and a decline of 23% for the second half of the financial year that ended. They did have increased, again, similar to NAB, similar to a Westpac, increased amount of impairment charges, that's then putting money aside for, say, bad debts or at least anticipating bad debts. They did also announce a dividend, $1.35 per share. I'm pretty sure theirs is not fully franked like the other two, but it's a cut from where it was, just like all the other banks from where it was a year ago. But that's Macquarie at the moment. Again, that they listening to some of their commentary coming out of it, they were very, very hesitant to sort of talk to what the future looks like, they think that they're in a, in, I guess, in a good position to do well moving forward. But for Macquarie, that, that that's too way too much uncertainty to providing any guidance, and that's not something they gave this week uh, to investors. But that's the banks a bit meh, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd be running in to put my money into banks. Well, I say I don't mean bank accounts. I'm talking about banking shares as an investment idea at the moment. Look, if you, if you if your horizon is super long term, maybe that's a different story. But I think Macquarie's looking as looking like a better one there for the long term. But Lee, I, I I'm not myself. I'm not running in to invest in banks right now. No way. 
the macro environment isn't that clear or that healthy at the moment, I'd probably be staying away, if I'm being honest. But that's it for the podcast. Wrapping up again for another week. Thank you very much for tuning in. We're up to, what was this? It was episode 36. I'm very curious to see how the sort of turnover period goes between now and, and January when there's meant to be a, a transition of power. We will see. If I've learned anything from the Trump era is that any day things could change dramatically. So maybe I'll be singing a different tune in terms of how the market's going as of tomorrow. But keep watching. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy your week. My name is Dion. Cheers. Cheers.